abnormal art and monstrous creations brought to life. Frankenfest, a new festival showcasing mad, magical, and mystical artwork, exhibits, and attractions, authors, haunt aficionados, and paranormal experts. Frankenfest arrives in Detroit at historic Fort Wayne on September 18th. For more details, visit frankenfest.com. Hey, 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 Ayla. Hey, Casey. Welcome back to Discombobulating Disappearances. I love this title. You made, you just, that was a great decision. I know, I'm excited. Sometimes <laughs> I, sometimes I hit the gold. I mean, honestly, the, the, there's a vein of genius Yes. That pops up. It that pops up makes it a little easier to reach every now and then. Every once in a blue moon, mm-hmm. it just says, "Okay, here you go. Here's a little nugget of something." Yeah, and then you go, "Oh shit!" It's like, "Dang, thanks for that." Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. You doing okay? Yeah, I'm. I'm tired because you know I'm school, but you mm-hmm. know it is what it is. I get that. How are you, my love? You know, I'm finally starting to feel normal after surgery. Yay! And I just have been in this happy little love bubble with my boyfriend and it's weird you guys are my favorite and you're so cute he's the cutest he really is so uh speaking of boyfriend Mm -hmm. he is entered in this contest okay um for those of you who don't know um my boyfriend is what i would call a ghostbusters aficionado Yes, that's what we'll call it. (laughs) (laughs) He has a deep and profound love for the Ghostbusters, and he has reconfigured his car to kind of be like the Ecto that was shown on the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Mm -hmm. And it's super cool. Like, it has all the lights and sirens and decals, and it looks like a giant drivable version of the toy Ectos from the 80s. Yep. Absolutely. Um, So he has entered this Ecto, the Kalamazoo's Ecto 1K, into a competition for a calendar. And the most votes gets the cover of the calendar. Mm. And he just, he thinks it would be really neat to have that happen. So I am hoping that you guys will take an opportunity to check out the show notes, click on the link for the Calgary Ghostbusters Facebook page, and then go like on, on the Ecto 1K for Kalamazoo. I will make sure it's linked properly, so all you have to do is just click, click, and be done. Awesome. So that's I. I already did it, but that's I did too. Fantastic. But I want. I really. We need to tap into. Yeah, and yeah. he's. You know, he's such a good guy, and this is like. I mean, genuinely, like a just a bomb ass person to hang out with. Yeah, and you know, it's this is important to him, and so then it's important to me. So, mm-hmm. guys, please do this. And if you message me, like always, I'll send you a butt pic. Yes. <laughs> Trying to see them buns. <laughs> um, another cool thing coming up in September. Mm-hmm. So, as you heard at the beginning of the show, the little commercial thingy, we are appearing live at Frankenfest September 18th at Historic Fort Wayne in Detroit. Um, our live performance will be around 3 p.m. Please bring your people, come hang out with us. Um, 
you know yeah tell us how awesome we are that's gonna be dope and i mean it's also izzy's birthday weekend so oh man yeah we're uh we're gonna have uh, my oldest there and hopefully maybe take her on a ghost tour or two <gasps> yay <laughs> um well like i said at the top today's episode discombobulating disappearances we realized that we have done not as many disappearances as we no like we totally when we first were talking about starting the show it was like all right well you know we're gonna have we're gonna do a lot of disappearances and serial killers and things and then the show kind of adjusted for lack of a better word evolved there we go let's go with that it evolved and we kind of spread out a little more than we originally thought we would, which has been super fun. It's great, but there's just, it just means there's so many possibilities. There really are. We have so many options. Um, <laughs> so we're really, we're excited to bring this episode to you today. Yeah. Um, would you like to hear some dad jokes? Of course I would. I mean, I know that's what everyone is here for, right? Yeah, they're always here for the dad, dad jokes. jokes. Do, you, do you think invisible airplanes will ever be a thing i just can't see them taking off oh god oh that was oh no that was terrible i know oh girl i know i I searched very hard to find you the worst of the worst oh yeah well done i know like i'm genuinely proud of you you're welcome (laughs) why did the airplane get sent to its room why bad altitude god that's so cute though i'm picturing like this like little sassy upset puddle jumper airplane like stomping off to its room (laughs) so cute where does a mountain climber keep his plane a cliffhanger oh god oh i wish you guys could see the look on elon's face that's that's beautiful i i i'm physically pained by that you're welcome you're welcome my god there's two more (laughs) (laughs) i'm not gonna make it you guys not gonna make it what did the football player say to the flight attendant? What? Put me in coach. Oh, God. That's not the direction I thought that was going in. I thought there was going to be, like, something about a touchdown in there. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, I know. I like it. It's I cute. Know. But, oof. Where are the Great Plains located? Where? In Great Airports. Duh. <laughs> of course. Oh, God. So, if those jokes were any indication, we're going to be hearing about something involving air flights? I actually, for this episode, um, I was talking to boyfriend, and we happened on the topic of coconut crabs, and then it led to me doing this particular disappearance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, I chose Amelia Earhart for today. And that makes sense. Are you ready for me to get into Amelia Earhart's life and disappearance? Hell yeah. All right. <laughs> so, Amelia Mary Earhart was born on July 24th, 1937 in Atchison, Kansas. Her father was a pretty talented railroad lawyer who, by all accounts, could have been very successful if it wasn't for his love of the hooch. Ah, oh, dang. Alcohol ruins everything, guys. It really does. Amelia's mother, who was also named Amelia, <laughs> came from a well-to-do family. She was known as an adventurous and independent person. Obviously, that's where her daughter got her feisty spirit. Amelia's maternal grandparents kept the family afloat financially because of the father's struggle to maintain a steady job. 
Um, Amelia and her sister spent a lot of time in their grandparents' home when they were growing up. And when the grandparents died, until the um, inheritance came through, the family really struggled with money troubles. And that kind of prompted them to move around a lot. Um, Because of that, Amelia attended a lot of schools, but she excelled in the sciences and sports. She um, did have a hard time making friends and keeping her grades up, though. I mean, haven't we all been there? It's true, you know? It's hard being a kid and, you know, adjusting to those things. It is. Especially when it's constant. Right. So, Amelia graduated in 1916, and the Christmas following her graduation, she went to Toronto to visit her sister. When she was there, she encountered a bunch of soldiers who had been wounded in World War I. She decided to volunteer as a nurse's aide with the Red Cross. I think this really opened her eyes to the world of aviation, and she kind of got hooked here, because um, it turns out that she was spending hours caring for wounded pilots when she was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so after the war, she ended up enrolling in Columbia university in pre-med. Um, about a year and a half into her studies, she decided to drop out and move to California to be closer to her parents because that's where they were at the time. Right. Um, and like, I forgot to, I didn't mention this, but Amelia's mom and dad shared a very volatile relationship and they were like together one minute, not together the next. Like it was very on and off for them. Mm -hmm. And so this time they were on again and they were in California. Okay. So when she was there, Amelia attended an air show on Long Beach in 1920. There was... It was there that she took her first airplane ride and became enamored with the experience. It was a short 10-minute ride that would inspire her to become one of the baddest bitches ever. Oh, my God. No joke. I'm. You guys don't even know. Like, maybe some of you know. Most of you don't know. <laughs> um, so Amelia started taking whatever odd jobs that she could get because she was on a mission to save enough money for a plane and some flight lessons. So, once she had saved enough for those lessons, she took them from Aviatrix Anita Snook. Fun fact, Aviatrix is the term for female pilot. Yep. I learned that recently. I, my friend became, my friend uh, got her pilot's license. Yay! That's awesome. I didn't know that, and it's a badass name. It's dope! So, um, at this point in her life, Amelia was basically living for aviation. She was constantly reading about her craft and learning whatever she could. She was still constantly at the airfields in her free time watching and learning. Fun fact, she bought herself a new leather jacket to fly in, but she was worried that the other pilots might think she was super inexperienced, so she slept in it to break it in. Oh my god, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Is that not adorable? So, Amelia's first plane was a dazzling yellow Kinner Airster that she purchased in 1921 and affectionately named the Canary. Mm -hmm. Amelia took her to her new craft very well. Um, I learned from biography.com that she started smashing records on October 22nd of 1922 when she flew her plane to 14,000 feet. Dang. Homegirl did not even have her home, her pilot's license yet. No! (laughs) She would actually go on to receive that on May 15th, 1923. Wow. So she was the 16th female to get a pilot's license from the world governing body of aeronautics. Mm Mm-hmm. Nuts. Do you imagine like being that new in a field and that much of a like ceiling breaker? Like I know, right? Like you're 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 brand new to this particular arena. Go in, break some records, get added to a list of like 
eminent pilots. Uh-huh. That's dope. Yeah, I mean, like, just imagine, like, making history. Like, uh, that's that'd be so, so cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, sometime around 1925, Amelia's parents called it quits on their marriage. Cash was super tight, so Amelia sold her beloved plane, and Amelia and her mother moved to Boston. She did another quick stint taking classes at Columbia, but did not have the money to continue, so once again she quit. She worked a few different jobs before finding one as a social worker at a home for immigrants, which I never knew that she worked as a social worker. I feel like Amelia Earhart, like, that's, we have that specific path in common, don't we? Like, uh-huh. <laughs> school, school's too expensive, time to drop out, <laughs> go, be, go start working in social work. Go again. Slash public health, start all over again. This is ridiculous. I know. That's Wait, funny. Keep, it, it gets better. We, okay. we get more alike. Oh, yeah. She's a bad bitch, I'm telling you. Uh, yep. So, anyway, she worked a few different jobs before finding this one as a social worker. And then she, at the same time, was also resuming her love affair with aviation. Mm-hmm. So, um, she ended up becoming a local sales rep for Kinner Airplanes in the Boston area. Um, she wrote about aviation for some articles in local papers and people kind of were starting to take notice of her at this time. Okay. Like if she lived right now, she probably would be like a poppin' Insta influencer. Oh like, yeah. You know, not super famous, but a lot of people are starting to take notice. Notable. Correct. Notable She's figure. Super notable. <laughs> so, um, to us, aviation is just kind of commonplace and boring. Right. You know, like, it's not fascinating, it's not new, it's not exciting. But during Amelia's lifetime, it was huge. Huge. Mm. Um, you gotta remember, it was a fairly new technology, and everyone was excited about it. Um, this was around the time that Charles Lindbergh was a big fucking deal. Oh, yeah. Um, he had just taken his solo flight from New York to Paris, and it was around this time that men had seen how well Charles Lindbergh was doing, like, these men with money. Mm-hmm. And so they started realizing, like, wait, you know, we could make a ton more money if we had a girl to do the same shit. I mean, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They're actually quite smart. Right. So what they did was they put out a call for aviatrixes mm-hmm. and kind of went scouting around. And so Amelia was approached by a publisher who was acting on behalf of many of these money-hungry dudes. He wanted to know if she would like to fly over the fucking Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) Amelia was obviously like, hell yeah. And she put up her devil horns to headbang in confirmation. (laughs) She... (laughs) So she went to New York where she met a bunch of the dudes with the money that wanted to make a fuck ton of more money, including this publisher dude named George Putnam. Sure as shit, she was selected to be the first bad bitch to fly over the Atlantic Ocean as a passenger. Wow. Because women are weak and fragile. (laughs) Wow. So, Amelia was, like, disappointed. Yeah, of course. But she's like, you know, I'm still going to do that shit because what an opportunity. Also true. So... Okay. The trip began on June 17th, 1928. Um, you know, I'm imagining that even though she's disappointed, she's still really stoked to have this awesome experience. Um, so she took off from Trespassy Harbor in Newfoundland with pilot Bill Stoltz and co-pilot Slim Gordon. It would actually take them about 21 hours to fly to Wales. Ugh. 
Um, she later talked about how not being allowed to make her fly made her feel super useless, and it was the thing that made her consider to do it on her own. Like, wow. So that that kind of stuck in her craw. Like, yeah, she was like, she's like, ah, this fucking sucks. I'm gonna show you. Fuck you, motherfuckers. Damn I'm doing right. this myself. Yes. So when they got back, they received a huge hero's welcome huge celebration parade and a reception with the president to honor them Ooh. the press started referring her to her as lady lindy which is a derivation of lucky lind charles Lindbergh's nickname oh yeah so i actually wrote out a huge long tirade about why this is problematic and why it makes me super sassy yes but i was it was not important to what we're talking about right now mm-hmm. so i deleted it but i want you all to know that it makes me fucking angry yeah that, so. that erasure is not that's not a joke. Like, <clears throat> nope. Wow. So, Amelia got. Amelia was so inspired by her experience that she wrote a book about it. She collaborated with George Putnam, who she met before being selected for her trip. Um, Putnam was kind of like an agent and promoter, like all in one. He was like just, I assume he's like a kind of skeezy guy with good suits. Well, yeah. Maybe look like Danny DeVito, maybe yeah. not. I don't know. That's kind of what I'm picturing. That's how I picture him. I, I don't know if I'm accurate, but I like it. Let's go with it. <laughs> so he promoted the shit out of her. Like pretty soon she was appearing at live events. She was in endorsements of all sorts. But to me, her most interesting venture during this time, in my opinion, is that she became heavily involved with the development of a women's clothing line. I love it. She's such a bad bitch that she's like, I don't like these fucking clothes that are available to me. Why? So for years, she made her own clothes that were functional and feminine. That's cool. And then when she got a little popularity, she decided that she wanted to create clothes that were functional, but also feminine for every woman because at this time, everything's about the fucking dudes. Yes! So she also went on to land uh, a huge editorship at Cosmo Magazine. What? So I didn't know that. I didn't know that Holy either. cow! Bitch was an editor at Cosmo. Man! Mm-hmm. That's and dope. And the cool thing is that she really used that as a platform to promote commercial air travel. Because at the time, it wasn't a thing. Yeah! So um, she also became a promoter for transcontinental air support which would later become transworld airlines neat mm-hmm. and then in 1928 she flew solo across north america yes she did she's a bad bitch <laughs> in 1929 she co-founded the 99s which is a group of female pilots who wanted to make space for women in aviation mm-hmm. and she went on to be their first president <laughs> now this is interesting i like this part <clears throat> Alright, so, <clears throat> on February 17th, 1931, Amelia Earhart, who openly ridiculed the institution of marriage, married George Putnam in Nunc, Connecticut, in a secret ceremony. This is sort of surprising because Amelia was engaged before and put off the wedding several times. Mm. Um, at one point, she flat out refused to wear a ring because she knew that he only wanted to make her quit flying after marriage. Right. Amelia and Putnam met when he was scouting for a female pilot to ride along on that transatlantic flight we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the grandson of a prominent publishing guy. He had a predilection for adventure, and he was the guy who and published Charles Lindbergh's retelling of his historic New York to Paris flight. Oh. Um, in Connecticut Magazine, he was referred to as a skilled conjurer who could pull a bestseller out of his hat. <laughs> I love that. 
Putnam was married at the time that he met Amelia, but the two quickly began an affair, which was pretty shitty of Amelia because she was totally friends with Putnam's wife. Oh, no. No. But, you know, even bad bitch makes bad choices sometimes. That's true. You know? We some, I mean, we've all forgotten the tenets of girl code at least once. At least once. <laughs> so, you know, it happens. We're moving on. <laughs> so, Amelia rejected between two and five wedding proposals from Putnam. But he was super eager to make Amelia his bride. I mean, he knew where the money was, honey. I mean... The two were finally engaged on October 30th, 1930. Earhart demanded that there would be no announcements. No flashy press. Nothing. And on the day that they were supposed to get married, she handed him a four-page front-and-back letter, basically a prenup, stating that he would not interfere with her career or her flying or they would not be married. I'd expect nothing less. And also, there would be no obeying, and she would absolutely keep her own last name. Damn right. Hell yeah, sister. Get it, girl. So, on... So, they got married, and then on May 20th, 1932... Amelia showed up to show out. <laughs> After a 15-hour flight from Newfoundland to Ireland, she became the first bad bitch to fly solo over the Atlantic. So Boom! Cool. Mic drop. So cool. So that was pretty exciting, and that was a huge boost to her career. Mm -hmm. um, and then in 1935, she went on to make the first solo flight from Hawaii to California. Um, fun fact, that's 2,408 miles. Dang. Um, and that flight was farther than if you flew to Europe from the U.S. Right. Um, at that time, it took her 17 hours and 7 minutes to complete. 1935 pr proved to be a very monumental year for her, as she also became the first person to fly solo from L.A. to Mexico City. Okay. I'm trying to picture the distances. That's a pretty good chunk, I bet. Yeah. Um... And then on June 1st, 1937, Amelia took off from Oakland, California, headed east. She was determined to be the first pilot ever to circumnavigate the globe at the equator. This was actually her second attempt to do so. The first attempt failed a few days in when she crashed in Honolulu. So she had a lot riding on this flight. Yeah. If she could do it, she would cement herself as an A-list celebrity. She would finally be able to fix her family's financial woes. Um, I kind of mentioned it earlier a little bit, but, like, Amelia wasn't super into the newer technologies. Okay. She, um, you know, it was kind of becoming more of a norm at this time for using the devices for navigation and communication, like mm -hmm. a radio, you know, signals, um, radar, like that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. You know, like the newer technology. She um, was so busy with her celebrity shit <laughs> that she really didn't have time to keep up on the newer technology of things. Okay, I can see that. So, um, before this flight, <clears throat> she realized her navigator wasn't good at this equipment either. Oh, yikes. So they said, fuck it. And they got rid of their telegraph transmitter, and they went on with their trip. She also got rid of her antenna that would have allowed her to communicate on marine frequencies in an emergency. I'm assuming that she did this to eliminate any extra weight to amplify her fuel efficiency. Mm -hmm. I'm not an expert, though. So she would rely solely on her radio to transmit her voice if anything did go wrong. Wow. So on her incredible journey, she made stops in Miami, South America, Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. 
They touched down in Lake New Guinea on June 29th after a flying, ugh, after flying a whopping 22,000 miles. Dang! By all accounts, she was super stoked to finish her trip. Weirdly, she sent her husband a telegram stating radio misunderstanding and personnel unfitness. I will probably hold for a day. So from what I can make out, her navigator was a bit of a lush. Oh, and I'm assuming that he was unfit for flight that day, so that's why they delayed. That makes sense. So with about 7,000 miles standing between her and Sweet Victory, Earhart and Noonan departed Lay on the morning of July 2nd. Okay. It was a beautiful day. It's sunny. You know, just... Good flying weather. Good flying weather. Yeah. Um... In the biography article, The Mysterious Final Flight of Amelia Earhart, they talk about how the Coast Guard was positioned strategically, ready and waiting to guide her to her next stop. Mm -hmm. Because, like, you, it's not like today where you had, like, extensive um, abilities to communicate. Like, Oh, yeah, of course. Back then, you had to have ships positioned to be able to radio them and, like, yeah. make sure you're in the right position and stuff. Oh, wow. Um, so... Apparently, there were some miscommunications that day, and the ship that was using, the ship that Amelia was supposed to communicate with was using bandwidths that Amelia could not access. Mm. So, 14 hours and some change into her flight, the Coast Guard received a very garbled message from Amelia talking about cloudy weather. As the static started to clear up from the communication, it became obvious that there was trouble. She radioed, we are circling and cannot see the island. We cannot hear you. Weirdly, the radio strength of these messages would indicate that she was fairly close nearby, but she just couldn't find the island. Ooh. Now, there were a lot of clouds that were about 35 miles northwest from where that carrier was positioned. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and if for some reason she got off course, it's entirely feasible that she could have flown into some bad weather and just couldn't figure out which way to go. Right clouds can impede vision and back then navigators used a lot of visual cues to be precise in their navigation okay. so if you couldn't see the cues then wow. you would, i know it's mind-boggling it never right? it, it never dawned on me that they would only be using visual isn't that cues? crazy to think about what else would there be right it's oh just stuff gosh. we take for granted nowadays yeah. it's nuts right Oof. so air last transmission came about 20 hours and 14 minutes into the flight it indicated that she would be going north and south in hopes of locating the island, but they never made it. Hmm. So, President Roosevelt authorized a huge two-week search and rescue mission for the lost duo. And you need to understand, this was a massive undertaking, especially back then. Yeah. They didn't have technology like we have now. You know, there was no helicopters flying overhead looking oh. at vast distances. Right. Like, it was like finding a needle in a haystack. <sighs> Um, two weeks later, on July 19th, 1937, they were officially declared lost at sea. Aww. The official U.S. government take has always been that the pair likely perished after they crashed into the Pacific Ocean. But there are several theories that float around out there, and one of them in particular seems very feasible to me. Mm -hmm. We all know the Bermuda Triangle thing. Right. Not going into that, because mm -mm. it's not likely. Um... But there's also, the first theory is that, um, this is the one the government endorses, the plane ran out of gas, they crashed, bummer. Okay. Theory number two is the Gardner Island theory, also known as the TIGAR, or International Group for Historic Aircraft Recovery Theory. The TIGAR group 
is investigating the hypothesis that Earhart and Noonan made an emergency landing. I'm going to talk to you more about this in a minute. Okay. Um, the last theory posits that the two were captured and executed by the Japanese, which is kind of dumb. I've heard that one before, but it never really made sense. Oh, me. wait. Nope. I lied. There was another theory that I thought was humorous. Oh. Get this. The duo were actually spies who completed a secret mission, and they got new identities. Yep, I've read that one on Reddit before. So dumb. I love it. So my favorite theory is the Gardner Island theory, because there's actually some science to back this up. Yay! And this is where you're going to get interested. Okay. This is where the nerd shit happens. (laughs) So on August 20th, 2019, the National Geographic ran an article called Colossal Crabs May Hold Clue to Amelia Earhart's Fate. Yep. Here is what I learned. Gardner Island is now known as Naikumaroro. Sorry if I said that wrong. It's a very tiny and remote island that is shaped like a triangle and measures about 7 kilometers by 2 kilometers. It is only about 300 miles off of Amelia's intended flight path. So it's entirely possible that she accidentally ended up there. Yeah. It's not that far. Um, so some Nat Geo folks made an expedition to the island... And this place is really remote, so it's not the type of place where most people hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what's there? Not shit except coconut crabs. I love it. What the fuck are coconut crabs, Casey? And why do you keep talking about them? <laughs> you ask? Be patient, my friends. I swear to God, this is where things get good, and you will know why I chose this particular disappearance. So good. Coconut crabs are incredibly similar to hermit crabs, but they grow to be like three feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. They are incredibly strong, and it is said that they can lift the weight equivalent to a 10-year-old child. <laughs> they could fucking pick up Izzy and drag her They could! <laughs> Just putting it out there. Once they reach adulthood, they only exist on land because they don't have gills. They have lungs. Oh, okay. Um... Who knew that some crabs could drown? Didn't know that. Didn't know. Uh, fun fact, the world's largest crab is actually the Japanese spider crab, but and they grow... Those to, are terrifying. Girl, they grow to be three meters from claw to claw. Yep. That's Yuck. freaky. Stay over there, assholes. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so these giant coconut crab assholes can live to be 60 years old. When they are immature, they use shells that they find as protection, just like little hermit crabs do but once they're adults they no longer have to do that so they they quit doing that at some point um they have two giant pincher claws that have serrated edges that act like teeth these claws are strong enough to crack a coconut with minimal effort i just need you guys to be aware that when casey was talking about the claws she did claw hand motions and it was fucking adorable how can you not that's that was the cutest thing i mean how can you not (laughs) Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. So another fun fact for you, Elon, because I know you love this shit. Mm-hmm. Human bite forces measure usually between 1,000 and 1,300 newtons. Yeah. These dickheads' claws have a crushing force of between 1,800 and 3,300 newtons. Holy shit. Dependent on their size and whatnot. Uh-uh. That's a whole lot of fuck that. Yeah, it is. And I always think coconut crabs are so cute. This is hurting my feelings. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> There's more. Oh, God. (laughs) So, anyway, the Tiger folks hypothesized that Earhart and Noonan could not find Howland Island, and instead they made an emergency landing on Gardner Island. 
They believe that Amelia utilized the coral reef that surrounds the island as a makeshift runway and that oh. Noonan probably died first, which they didn't speculate about this at all mm-hmm. in the article. But as someone who's worked in healthcare, if Noonan was a severe alcoholic and they did crash and he didn't have alcohol. That's what I was thinking. Um, the, the tremors, the delirium tremors could have happened and he could have detoxed hard and died from yep. that. It's really not easy. infeasible that that would have happened within a few days or a week or not whatever. Not to mention they're... Dehydrated. Exactly. Yeah. So... He, there, there's lots, yeah, lots of, of factors. Yeah. So, um, they're guessing the plane probably drifted out to sea and sank, and Amelia was stranded alone on Gardner Island, except for the fucking crabs. Oh, my God. No shelter, no food. Thousands of crabs. Thousands of crabs big as a terrier. That come out at night. Fuck this. So, fast forward to 1940. Okay. The British tried to establish a small colony on the island. Of course they did. Kind of like they did everywhere. It it didn't pan out. No one lives there now. (laughs) Um, So the administrator of the island sends a telegram to his superior officers that mentions finding a partial human skeleton on the island. Mm -hmm. So... I feel like partial human skeleton is a little bit of an over-exaggeration. Okay. They found 13 bones, and there are 206 bones in a human skeleton. Right. So, they sent the 13 bones to Fiji for examination, but they got lost. So, we don't know who they were. Oh, my God. But (laughs) proponents of this theory suggest that perhaps coconut crabs, who are also known as robber crabs probably feasted on Amelia's body after she died and scattered the bones around. Maybe they carried some back to their burrow nest thingies. Who knows? I mean, and also birds. Right. Like seabirds. So, to test the theory, though, you know, we, we want to we know. Is this possible? Yeah. So, we take a giant pig. Oh, shit. And we kill it. Okay. And we leave it out as a tasty treat for the crabbies. Right. So... It took about two weeks for the crabs to pick the corpse clean of fresh of flesh. When they checked a year later, they noticed that some of the bones were scattered as far as 60 feet away, but they could not account for all of the bones. Oh. They believe that it is super likely that Amelia probably ended up there as a castaway, and these opportunistic crabs waited until she either died or was too weak to care. Mm-hmm. Then they ate her and scattered her bones in the way that Mother Nature intended. National Geographic is still working to excavate the island, and they have brought in forensic dogs to try to help with their investigation and search with clues. Wow. Right? So, that's kind of where we're at with the theories. And, like, okay. I kind of believe that. Yeah, that, that one, when they, when this was announced years ago, I was like, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. It's feasible, sense. right? Yeah. So, you know, um... Amelia was a really cool chick. Mm-hmm. I kind of think that she was the type of chick that we would hang out with. Oh, hell yeah. She had a knack for de- denying gender roles almost from birth. Like, she <laughs> was into basketball. She took car repair courses. She did not consider herself to be a girl's girl. Yeah. She's a renaissance woman. Mm-hmm. She also did not consider herself to be a feminist. Mm-hmm. But she was, even if it was unintentional. Yes. You know, when she was trying to fight her way into aviation, it was wildly assumed that women would stay home, barefoot, pregnant, be Mm -hmm. in the kitchen, don't do anything, listen to the menfolk. Like, this was not a career that a woman would pursue. Yeah. So, 
her path to greatness has paved the way for generations of other women to do the same. Hell yeah. And I'm kind of glad that I read more about her. Yeah, that I learned a lot more about her life than I knew before. Isn't and that kind of neat, though? That's very cool. Like, she, she had a cool-ass life. Like, right? outside of the flight. Like, I... You know, like what we're taught. We're taught the important part. Right. She went lost over it. Yeah. They didn't go into all the badass stuff that she did. No, they didn't. And I'm so glad that I was like, okay, I need to learn about these fucking gross ass crabs. Yeah. Like, how awesome was this? Oh my god, I love it. So cool. So, okay. <laughs> like, as a parent, there is nothing quite like the hopes we have for our kids. That's right? true, yeah. Like, from the day we are aware of their little, ex- their, like, even their existence, we dream of the person that they'll become, and that's before we even know what they look like. Like, it's just yeah. this very deep attachment. Mm-hmm. So, what happens when that little one you've envisioned such a bright future for mysteriously disappears? Oh my god, heartbreak, devastation, worst thing that could ever possibly fucking happen? Oh, yeah. But... Also, possibly aliens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the story of Juan Pedro Martinez Gomez, El Nino de Somosierra, who's the have... boy of Somosierra. Okay, but you have got me interested. All right. So, Juan Pedro was an only child, born to Andres Martinez, who was a trucker, and Carmen Gomez, who was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, the family lived together in a small town in southern Spain called Marcia. The spirited and intelligent 10-year-old was the light of his parents' life, and he had an excellent relationship with them both, which honestly is kind of amazing. Aww. He frequently accompanied his father on short delivery trips and loved to see the dif- different towns that are nearby. From school, Juan had just started learning about the verdant fields of Spain's Basque region. Given the fact that his hometown of Mercia is largely desert, the novelty of seeing vast green fields became a like a prime focus of his. He often spoke of wanting to take a trip to the fields and see the grazing livestock. And as an incentive, Andres told Juan Pedro that he would take him to the Basque countryside if his grades were good in the next semester. Baby, that was all he needed to hear. Hell yeah. Motivation. <laughs> right? Juan Pedro made straight A's that semester, and yeah. that meant he was going to see the fields of bass. Yeah, get it, Juan Pedro! Yes, little guy was over the moon. I love that. So now, Andres, having to make good on his promise, was kind of troubled. Juan Pedro was used to the shorter delivery trips. This was much longer. Um, Andres wasn't sure that his precious son would be able to handle such a long, uh, such a long trip. And also, he was a little concerned for his safety because if Andreas is making a delivery, he's going to be outside of the truck for a while. Right. He didn't have anybody to supervise. So, to circumvent this, Andreas convinced his wife, Carmen, to come along on the long trip. Oh, family trip. Yeah, yeah, so now it's like a good old family road trip to the Basque countryside. And, you know, I'm kind of hearing the opening strains of Holiday Road. Sounds amazing. Being piped in. So... Soon, Andreas received a delivery order that would take them through Basque, and the plan was set into motion. Andreas was tasked with a load of 20,000 liters of sulfuric acid, Ooh. Yeah, which needed to be taken from Cartagena to Bilbao. 
this was a really long trip, about uh, 515 miles, so eight hours. Yep. The evening of June 24th, 1986, the family packed their things and got into the truck, complete with snacks to enjoy on the way. Nice. According to the truck's tachometer, the trip started off as expected. Andres and his family made their scheduled stops at 9 p.m., 12, 12 a.m., 3 a.m., and 5.20 a.m. So that last stop at 5.20 on the morning of June 25th was at a diner slash inn. And Andres and Carmen ordered two coffees, and Juan Pedro ordered a slice of cake. The family ate happily, paid, and got on the road. Their Volvo F12 truck, which, reminder, was towing a tank that contained sulfuric acid right yeah so i because i started with the metric i'll go to imperial uh that was 5,283.4 gallons of pure sulfuric acid that's a lot of sulfuric acid i think yes and attaching it in a tank separate from the truck seems a little dangerous yeah but it was 1986 and things were not as safe necessarily in that day So, the truck and its tank began the hazardous journey through the Somo Sierra Mountains. The narrow and steep mountain pass proved to be a challenge for the truck. According to the vehicle tachometer, the vehicle made 12 super quick stops, all between 1 and 20 seconds each, which is kind of weird. And they were all at varying speeds. Andres was in experienced driver having been a trucker most of his life so what could have caused these weird stops weird like i was thinking was he maybe trying to break check a tailgate or maybe someone or something in the car was distracting him you know we don't know exactly what happened and why those stops occurred but it's safe to say that it could have been a mechanical issue as well like the brakes were failing Witnesses reported that Andres was also driving erratically, even go, going so far as to one to run one truck off the road, and then he also sideswiped another. Weird. Yeah. Witnesses reported seeing the Volvo barrel downhill at about 90 miles an hour, turning sharply and then crashing into another vehicle. According to the truck's tachometer, Andres did not attempt to brake or even change lanes to avoid the other vehicle. The family's truck flipped, landed on its side, which damaged the tank that they were towing. Sulfuric acid poured from the gash in the side of the tank and drenched the cab of the truck as well as the surrounding area. Oh, no. Yeah. So, quick science lesson, friends. Do you remember, like, the like middle school science experiments with acids and bases? Did you guys do that? Yep. Okay. It's been a while, so you know I had to go look mm-hmm. this up. Yep. I do I do remember getting some sulfuric acid on a sweater and it just I mean immediately. Mm-hmm. That was the worst ever and I yeah, I've been terrified of sulfuric well, acid yeah. since then. So, sulfuric acid is both odorless and colorless, but it is highly caustic and also flammable, which I did not know until I read this. Wow. It is very easy to get a chemical burn from a splash of it, speaking from experience, but sulfuric acid is not just letting us off that easy. The chemical actually dehydrates your skin, which can cause thermal burns on top of the chemical burn. Oh my God. Yeah. Sulfuric acid is not to be played with. Um, It can straight up eat through metal and stone. So a human body isn't isn't really a challenge. So let's think about this. 
5,283.4 gallons of a highly corrosive, highly flammable liquid leaking and spreading over a widespread area. Not to mention that this was also an active crash scene involving three or more vehicles. First, wow. yeah, it's, and from what I have been able to find, there were fires around, there were explosions that took place. Like this is, this is like an active scene, right? Mm -hmm. First responders get there really quickly, start evacuating uh, the people that live in the area and freeing the trap drivers and also pouring different neutralizers over the acid over the acid spill itself so from what i was able to tell there was sand um baking soda and another chemical neutralizer that was like produced in the area so the the actual crash site was very near the duraton river so it could have been a major ecological disaster in all honesty after about three hours, the rescue workers were able to reach the Martinez's Volvo. The workers opened the cab and were, and they are immediately met with Andres and Carmen's remains. Sadly, they had passed away and had been badly burned by the acid. Oh no. Mm -hmm. That afternoon, the authorities called the family's next of kin, who's Carmen's mother. She lived with them in Mercia. They informed Mrs. Gomez of the death of her daughter and son-in-law. She's obviously horrified and right. heartbroken. Probably heartbroken. wants to know where her grandbaby is. Huh. Yeah. So she's she's horrified, heartbroken. After a pause to catch her breath, because you know she's getting choked up, she asks, and the boy? Please tell me the boy is all right. The agent, obviously confused and with a creeping, horrific realization, replied, what boy? Oh, no. Upon hearing that there was another person in the vehicle, the first responders rush back to the scene to check the cab. Once there, they find some of Juan Pedro's clothing and a couple of cassette tapes with recordings of children's stories on them. It was clear that a child had been in the cab of the truck at one point, but there was no sign of Juan Pedro. What the fuck? Yeah. With this information, an about 18-mile search began. The guard was called in search dogs helicopters and several full search teams on foot they searched for days and never found even a trace of little juan pedro so this story was massive in europe like sure. this was huge mystery it is now considered to be one of their most mysterious mysterious disappearances so you know now it's my favorite it's time for our favorite part oh god theories so <laughs> There are a few different theories for what happened to Juan Pedro and after the crash, like all the different variables, like, yeah, people have been busy. So theory one is that Juan Pedro was either thrown from or crawled out of the back of the truck without anyone seeing him. After that, he proceeded to run or walk towards the river, either to seek relief from the sulfuric acid burning his skin or to get away from the explosions and fires around the crash site. So, like, this one doesn't add up to me because imagine a terrified 10-year-old waking up after a crash mm -hmm. and, and he's out. covered in acid. He's not going to be quiet. No. He's going to be screaming. People, people are going to see. That you know. and also, how the hell would anyone think that he could make it the about, I don't know, 800 feet from mm -hmm. the accident to the river? When he's covered in sulfuric acid. Exactly. So, according to the articles I found, the river was searched thoroughly, so this one just doesn't work. 
Theory two is one that hurts my heart to think about, but is super reasonable. It also needs a little bit of little bit more explanation than the others. So Spain in the mid eighties was rife with drug trafficking, mm-hmm. specifically as a conduit for drugs bound for the U.S. and Western Europe. Nice. The prime minister at the time, Felipe Gonzalez, was in the pocket of drug dealers and lifted many regulations and laws surrounding drug possession and use. Gotta get that money. Okay. Since possession itself was decriminalized in 1983, Spain had had a huge increase in opiate and coke use. At the time of Juan Pedro's disappearance, Spain was the entry point for pretty much all South American and South Asian narcotics to make it to the Western market. Mm. The networks of dealers took advantage of Prime Minister Gonzalez's lax stance on drugs and organized crime in Spain skyrocketed. This theory asserts that Andres was either threatened into or paid to traffic drugs. Hmm. He was a legitimate trucker, so he would have been a great choice for a drug mule because he wouldn't attract attention at checkpoints. He's been doing this his whole life. Like, they're probably just waved him on, honestly. Right. The thought is that the traffickers probably approached Andres after their breakfast at the diner slash inn, and there's a possibility that he may have been pressured into trafficking their narcotics, or he refused, which caused the traffickers to hold Juan hostage. Mm. It's also entirely possible that they took little Juan Pedro and sold him off, or possibly murdered him when his father would not agree to be their mule. Mm. It stands to reason that the weird stops and the dangerous driving were because he was trying to evade or maybe even pursuing the traffickers. Who knows? This theory is backed up by a Spanish national paper called El País in an article dated June 6, 1987, which reports the traces of heroin being found in the tanker of Andre's truck. Well, I mean, yeah, makes sense. It does. So, Theory 3 is my personal favorite. I'm excited. It's going to be your favorite, too. I love it. It is the most far-fetched and comes directly from witnesses at the scene. <laughs> oh, no. So, it's very rare that those two things Witnesses. Are part- yeah, witnesses and it's super far-fetched. I mean, nobody saw the kid get out and right. run to the river. But... But they saw this. Yeah. Okay. So, according to two shepherds whose flocks were grazing in the mountains, they were interviewed interviewed and reported this to the police. I can't wait. Okay. A white cargo van pulled up next to Andreas' truck after the accident. Two people got out, and the shepherds described them as being unusually tall, Nordic-looking beings. Mm. One male and one female. The witnesses stated that these ethereal beings wore doctor's uniforms. They took a package out of the cab of the truck and left. Authorities tried to track the shepherds down but couldn't find them after the original report. So this was the theory that the media latched onto at the time, of course. And it has become the pet theory for a very specific group of people. (laughs) The UFO community picked right up on this one. And that is because certain species of extraterrestrials are usually described as tall and Nordic looking. So in my mind, this is like an interstellar Tilda Swinton deal. Yeah, right? I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this was... It's Tilda Swinton and Conan O'Brien. Yes! That's it! Exactly! Mm-hmm. So this was also backed up by the being's you know, apparent ability to walk through an extremely corrosive acid, seemingly unscathed. Right. All right. So the two people could be aliens. They are. <laughs> or they could just be vacationing Swedes, right? 
No. <laughs> so, okay. Listen, vacationing Swedes don't come get packages out of sulfuric acid and not get burned up. Oh, I know. But my thought, I mean, I think, okay, two things. Either they were drug traffickers. Mm -hmm. The package they retrieved from the car was drugs of some sort. Mm -hmm. Or. Well, in the medical uniform could have been hazmat type wear. Yes. You know? Could have been. I could see that. That makes sense. Um, okay. So we have that option or they could just be good Samaritans. Like they're out traveling. They pull up, grab the package and drive away. Maybe. But Doubt what it. if the shepherds were far enough away that the package for the package to be, I don't know, Juan Pedro. He was fairly small for a 10-year-old. Yeah. So, to me, like, say they were far away enough, they just saw something be being removed from the truck. Well, and if they, like, had brought, like, a duffel bag or something with them to shove a kid in or whatever. Right. Like, that could, you know, yeah. there could be something to I've that. I've heard of weirder. Yeah. So, that's my thought. But, now, you think if they were, they picked him up, saw that he was hurt, and were like, oh, God, let's get him to a hospital. Okay, sure. But if they took him to the hospital, then there would probably be records of some sort. There's a paper trail. You would think. Mm -hmm. But what if he died along the way? Mm. Good Samaritans may have panicked, been unsure of what to do with the body of a 10-year-old. And since they were in the country already, they may have just dumped him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they also could have driven far enough away in that span of time that the dump site wasn't within the 18-mile search area absolutely right so that one kind of sticks with me a little too theory four now this is just very entertaining and it has a little bit of linguistics nerdery in it so you know i love all it. right theory four came about due to a handful of sightings of a boy fitting juan pedro's description around bilbao that was the city that they were taking the um sulfuric acid to sure and also in madrid the sighting in madrid is the one that is just like bonkers to me so may of 1987 uh maybe a little less than a year after a driving instructor was the witness who reported that a blind elderly foreign woman and a little boy approached him and asked for directions to the american embassy the woman told him that she and her family fled from Iran as refugees six months earlier and were in need of help. The driving instructor mentioned that the boy looked about 10 or 11 and was acting as her translator. He commented on the boy's command of Spanish for only having been in the country for six months because he assumed that, you know, mm -hmm. he was of some relation to the woman. He said the boy spoke Spanish with an Andalusian accent and mm -hmm. seemed very confused. So, like I said, you know my inner linguistics nerd latched onto this yeah. part, and yep. I need to explain this a little more. The Andalusian accent is the one that most people will hear coming from someone from Spain, and it almost sounds like a lisp. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, that's because there's no differentiation between S and Z sounds in that dialect, so they both just sound like... Yeah, it's... Um, so, time out. Mm -hmm. In 2000, I went to Spain. Mm -hmm. And our tour guide had this particular accent. Mm -hmm. And in that area of Spain, bondiga is a common greeting. Yep. Good day or whatever. But they say it weird. They say bondiga. Yep. It's, it's I can't TH. do it right. But it's, yeah, it's 
crazy. Yep. Yeah. So yes, they they have a th sound. So and it to people who are not familiar, it just sounds like a lisp. Yep. But <laughs> this is called SSL. So SSL is common in Andalusian and Castilian dialects, but can also be confused for the rural accent of Cartagenians like Juan Pedro and his family. This explains why the instructor thought he was Andalusian if this was Juan Pedro. Mm -hmm. Later on, the driving instructor was watching TV when one of Juan Pedro's alert segments came on. He immediately recognized him as the boy he was speaking with early in the day. So the driving instructor drops everything and drives out to the Red Cross shelter where the older woman and the boy told him they were staying, but they had never returned back to that place. So this case is literally a year older than I am. And this family has never known what happened to Juan Pedro. Mm -hmm. So 35 years of heartbreak and just... I wonder if they have ever tried to do like a DNA test. I thought and, about that like, too. Do like the Jed match and yes, I feel like that would be good. Be like interesting. That would, that I'd be really interested to see if anything came. You know. Yeah. So this is thirty-five years of them searching for him, right? Mm -hmm. The family has spent thousands passing out about a hundred thousand posters, hiring detectives, and pouring all of their energy into finding Juan Pedro. Hmm. So, the family stated that a particularly dangerous organized crime group called and threatened the surviving members' lives if they didn't stop the investigation. Juan Pedro's family still believes that he's alive, but don't think he was in the truck at the time of the crash. They believe that one of those weirdly timed stops Andres made may have been an opportunity for Juan Pedro to jump out or be taken out of the Volvo. I really, really hope they're right. I, I feel like that's the most likely is that yeah. he got kidnapped and maybe the erratic driving was them being chased. Yes. Or, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. that makes sense to me. It does. With the and, climate of the time and, you know. And the actual, like, we now that we have, oh, by the way, that whole deal with the, with the uh, drug lords and stuff, that is corroborated in a declassified CIA document. Wow. Yeah, it's been it's been like sanitized, but right. they flat out say it. I would be really interested to see if the family has done a DNA test, mm -hmm. you know, and see what would come about of that. Yeah, like this one, I, I this one sticks with me. I feel like he could be alive somewhere, right? And it, like say that he lost his memory, or it was just so traumatic that he but blasted he just, it out. I mean, Ten is still pretty young, and mm -hmm. if he, you know, if he was injured at all, like head injuries can cause things. Absolutely, well, you know, like. Or if he's just fucking terrified. That too. You know? Because who knows? Brainwash. Yeah. I mean, and if you're thinking about drug traffickers, God. Like, maybe they just sold him to recoup some of their money. That was my thought. You know? I kind of just assumed he'd been sold. Oh, poor kid. Yeah. That's awful. That's so sad. Yeah. We I like this one because of the aliens, though. Yeah. I, I like the idea of him becoming, you know, he was just adopted by these strange Nordic... <laughs> ethereal so by, this, I do like, by this couple I do like the mental image of it being Tilda and Conan though I do too <laughs> like that the, the, super that tall was super yes! weird looking and like there was okay that's the vibe I get from those like unicorn hunter couples <laughs> yes. that are like so we have a proposition 
Oh god, gross. Yeah, that that's not my. Favorite. Except they never look like that. They no. always look like um, Jabba the Hutt. Usually the man looks like Tilda Swinton in my experience. Um, <laughs> no, in my experience, it's just like a fat blobby men. Oh no, who are super insecure about their women dating men. Yep. And or women by themselves, mm-hmm. and so they want to get excited about their chicks being another chicks. Right. You know, that's usually who it that is. That makes sense. That's usually who it is. I can see that. In my experience. I my, think because of when when I get approached by those people, I'm normally yeah. somewhere far away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally by myself. Because mm. <laughs> our Vegas trip, there was a very aggressive couple that Ooh. was... I get them Observant. on... Um, <laughs> So on OkCupid, you mm-hmm. can link your dating pri- profile to your partner's dating profile. Oh, cute! I didn't know they upgraded like that. Yes, I've been on OkCupid since. So and yeah. and they are they are a site that is more friendly to people in open relationships. They are. Um, like you can list non-monogamy specifically. Like, it's very. Mm-hmm. I really like it. They give great options for your gender identities yeah. and sexualities, and like it's really inclusive, and I like that and. So, Anthony and I both have profiles mm-hmm. on there, and if the guy doesn't look like Jabba the Hutt, he looks like Ted Nugent. I was about to say that! <laughs> oh, God! Most of the women are okay, but mm-hmm. sometimes they look like they might do meth and elegant. Yep, that tracks, in my experience also, even though it was, you know, like 12 years ago. <laughs> Yikes. So, yeah. No, thing. Now you. you know that. Yep, that is now. That's now filed away in my brain. Yep. Oh my god. So, do we have any uh, news besides what we talked about earlier? I don't think so. Do no, we? I don't think so either. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't forgetting something. Oh, okay. I was like, "What are you?" No, no, no. I I just wanted to make sure. I was like, mm, "What? Are, what are we learning?" Here? You are a mess. <laughs> you know it. I love it. So, guys. We are still in search of World Podcast Domination. Mm-hmm. Please do us a huge favor and go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review with words talking about how fucking awesome we are. We also are, um, we now have claimed the pay, claimed our page on Good Pods. So if you Ooh, want to do that, please go on Good Pods. Because my weird little goal that popped in my head last night was for us to get on the indie charts on Good Pods. That's actually one that we might have a chance of doing. Oh, let's do this shit. Yeah, let's do that. So guys, go on Good Pods. Speak our praises. Tell us you <laughs> love us. Then give us a little email back and I'll send you a butt pic if you want. Yay, butt pics! Um... Where can they find us, though? Well, we can be found on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, Twitter, and shortly YouTube here. Uh oh, moving up in the world. Man, we getting fancy. Yes, at SSS Podcast Thirteen. Gmail. Yep, you can send us. You can send us love letters. SSSpodcast13 at gmail.com. Yes. So feel free to reach out. We want to hear stories too. If you have yes. had some spooky things happen in your life, have yes. Conan and Tilda kidnapped you? Ooh. Ooh. Please tell us. I'm into this. I need to know. Have you met any tall Nordic looking couples? Have they probed you? Yes. 
I am still waiting to be probed by my alien boyfriend that I, mean, I don't have. I would like to hear about said probe, you know, for science. I, You know what? <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> Pick me up, knock me out, do some probes, <laughs> and then drop me back off. Aliens only, please. Aliens only, yeah. <laughs> Make that caveat, because girl. <laughs> Okay. Oh, man. All right. Well, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.